Let's pray. Lord, soften our hearts today for what you have for us. I pray that my words would be your words. I pray that you would be honored here. In your name we pray, amen. So this week, I get to kick off our Lent series called Ashes to Ashes. And over the past few weeks, Jason's walked us through looking at love and the lost. More specifically, that God is love and how we relate to that attribute of his, that piece of his character and our perceptions of that. Last week, we talked about the lost and we prayed together. We had a collective time of looking at the world our country, our city, unreached people, our personal problems, our family and our friends, our city, through God's eyes. And we gathered together and we aligned our hearts with his, right? That's what prayer does. It aligns our hearts with God. And we did it together. And in the coming weeks through Lent, we're going to explore the early days of the church leading up to Easter Sunday. So it helps me to pair the word Lent with repent, It rhymes, Lent, repent, and that's what Lent is really about. It's intended to be a season season of understanding the character of God, and in contrast, our own character with a heart of humility. And then we turn to him in repentance as we contemplate celebrating his death and what he did for us on the cross and his resurrection. So, this morning, at the beginning of our church season of repentance, we're going to look at God's holiness. Holy is an attribute of God, a piece of God's character that forms the basis for understanding him better. Just like when you have a good friend, and we understand the pieces of their character, as more time goes by, we get to know them better, and that's the same way that that knowing God's character helps us. We understand him and his actions better, and we can love him more. So humans are going to end up failing us because we do not have perfect character, right? But because God's attributes are pinnacle perfection, whatever that attribute is that we're talking about is never going to cancel out another attribute. It's never going to counteract another attribute in a way that makes it less. So this morning we're going to talk about his holiness, And we're going to spend most of our time in Isaiah 6. So think with me for a moment in time, for a moment, when you experienced something that was massive, like so massive that it broke your brain a little bit. Maybe the Grand Canyon, maybe a huge mountain range, maybe a city. I know when people walk through New York, they say, like, you can always tell who the tourists are because they're always looking up, right? I remember that I actually experienced that feeling standing on a ridgeline in the Bitterroot Mountains, right where Lewis and Clark almost died in a blizzard, actually. And I stood there, and I was overwhelmed by the mountains as far as my eyes could see in all directions. And I was overwhelmed by the hugeness of time as well. Just Lewis and Clark and me, two tiny little spots in the great clock of eternity, and we were actually very close together, and I felt that in that moment so strongly right there. So the tallest building in the world is the Burj Khalifa, and it's in Dubai, and it's 163 stories tall. The second tallest building in the world is 118 stories tall, 
in Malaysia. So the Burj Khalifa is a whole 45-story skyscraper taller than the second tallest building in the world. The Burj Khalifa's largeness is extra dramatic because the next tallest building in Dubai is half as tall. It's just over, just a few stories over half as tall. So all the other skyscrapers in the city look kind of silly. And when people talk about visiting Dubai, they talk about how it's an uncomfortably overwhelming experience, or presence, this building is. You can see it everywhere you go, and the closer you get to it, the more alarming it is. You can't lean back far enough to see the top of it. One person described it as feeling like an ant at the bottom of a light pole. So why are we talking about huge things? Because we don't really actually have ways to quantify God's holiness. It's an attribute of his that is really hard for us to understand. But he's given us a really great tool, a really great way for us to conceptualize who he is and things about him that we don't understand. He's given us imaginations. Imagination is a foundational component of our faith. Because, yes, we have truths that we can read about and build a foundation on, but our physical lives are actually so small and our, dement- our perspective is so one-dimensional that we can't quantify the power and dominion of the God that we worship. I think God's original purpose in imagination was helping us understand him better. Most likely all of us have sat with a toddler and pretended to eat delicious plastic food, right, that was prepared in an imaginary kitchen. Today, we're going to enter the furthest reaches of our imagination with that childlike wonder and delight and explore God's holiness and how it transforms our lives. It's applicable to your daily walk. So let's see how the holiness of God should brighten us, for sure, but it should also give us rest. And with God, those two truths, those two truths can walk hand in hand, and that's because there's a catalyst. There's a key between those two things. There's a key that takes us from true fright to true rest, from sinful discomfort and fear to secure comfort and security. And that's the one and only Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And that's what he did for us. So the first statement that we're going to look at today is that God's holiness should be at the center of your life. God's holiness should be at the center of our life. (laughs) So we start in Isaiah 6. And this is a vision that Isaiah has. It's a vision, but we don't know how real this vision was. It might have been an experience. And it's overwhelming in its hugeness. He sees the Lord sitting high on a throne with these seraphim. He says, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The temple was huge. The robe was huge. Everything's huge. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two wings they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Heavenly beings all around the Lord. We'd call those heavenly beings glorious, right? But they don't even match his glory. 
The Lord is so big, his robe fills the temple. The seraphim praise the Lord, and it says the whole building shakes at its very foundation, and smoke fills the room. The closest thing we've ever probably experienced to something like this is a very large concert, right? This is huge. And we, we all start somewhere and exist somewhere within a theological and moral and spiritual frame of reference. We all function within this frame of reference and relate to the world around us within. This is the absolute truth, kind of like we believe in gravity because we experience it every day, right? It changes how we interact with the world. So what I believe to be true is deeply rooted in my person and all the ways I function in the world. So that means when we read Isaiah 6-3, where Isaiah has a vision of the seraphim praising God and saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. That needs to be the foundation, the glasses that I view the world through. Note the repetitiveness of the word holy. The Hebrew language actually repeats words because they didn't have an exclamation point in their grammar and the way that they spoke. I think repetitive words might be the way to go. I do love a good exclamation point, but repetitive words is amazing because if I say, holy is the Lord God Almighty, you're like, yeah, holy, right? But if I say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, You've stopped and listened and taken notice. You're stretching the imagination. You're stretching your imagination in understanding the word holy. If I say, oh, he's a huge guy, you're like, oh, yeah, a big guy, right? But if I say he's a huge, huge, huge guy, you're like, wait, how big can a guy be, right? You've moved beyond big. Now you're stretching what your imagination is possible and thinking about how big this guy might be. This is incalculable holiness. I like to think what I like to think about things. I bet you are the same. And so that's why we have God's word to paint picture after picture after picture for us of God's holiness. And if we're believers, we also have the guarantee of the Holy Spirit helping us to read his word. So I'd like for us to turn to Isaiah 55, 11 through 13, and contemplate this for a moment. This helps us to more fully understand how God's word is the center of our life. And this is vital by any other route, we're actually doing it wrong. If you think you have a relationship with him and you don't read his word, you need to reconsider what your relationship with God looks like. Word is actually one of his attributes. In John, it says, he is the word. I am the word. And he's given us tools throughout his Bible, throughout his word. Whatever your learning style is, it's there. He's given us stories and examples and songs and imagery and history and so many ways every learning style can understand it. And with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can read it forever and ever and ever and never get bored. He's given us prayer so that we can sit with him and his word. Like having coffee with a dear friend and bask in his love and wisdom. Usually when I pray and read my Bible, I have coffee with me. So this passage speaks 
to the how of living with God's holiness at the center of our life. It says, so my word that goes out from my mouth, it will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You, reading God's word, you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace because you read God's word. You, let's see, I lost my spot. You will go out and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you before you read, because you read his word and all the trees of the field will clap their hands because you read God's word. Instead of thorn bushes, will grow the juniper and instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. We're changing Latin categories because we've read God's word. This will be for the Lord's renown for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. God's holiness is to be at the center of our lives through his word, and and he will accomplish what he desires in us through that. What a beautiful promise. And this takes us from that place of fear into this joy and peace that we're talking about here. The mountain and the hills will burst into song. Why? Because I'm in God's word. This sounds unimaginable, but if you've been in God's word, you know this isn't far-fetched. This is true. This is what being in his word feels like. You know, I'm starting out as a thorn bush in this scripture. I am the briar. And I think of this like I don't look at my dog and wonder if they can lay me an egg, right? I look to my chickens for that. But when we're talking about changing plant types, that's the transformation that is possible here into a completely different plant or animal family. It's incredible, and it's what he will do with your life. So our next statement that we're going to look at is how God's holiness shows us the ugliness of our sin and our need for God's grace. And we've talked about this a little bit. We're heading towards this, but let's talk about it more fully. It should frighten me, and it should blow my mind, and God's holiness should frighten me and blow my mind, and it should form a basis for how I view myself. I am those briar bushes, those thorn bushes. So God's holiness should be the mirror that I view the darkest parts of myself, the darkest and most sinful parts of myself in. And this is where Jesus enters the picture and he changes everything. We see Isaiah's response to God's holiness in verse 5. So we see we have the smoke the, temp- the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. And he said, Woe to me, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Not very many people in the Bible actually got to see God, but Isaiah got to see God. Most people would cover their eyes. And then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand. And he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched it to my mouth and said, See, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. He is immediately filled with woe and dismay. He doesn't wax eloquent. He doesn't go on and on about what he sees before him. He confesses. He repents. His view of himself is transformed in a moment. James tells us that the tongue is a fire. 
lights a forest on fire. We know about wildfires here, don't we? Matthew warns us about being a clean, glistening, whitewashed stone on the outside and an unclean, nasty tomb within. The Psalms call our tongue a sword and an asp or a poisonous snake. Everything within comes out through our mouth, doesn't it? Not just the words we say, or the thing, but the things we talk about and discuss and our perspectives of other people and situations. Who we are always comes out of our mouth. This is Isaiah being dramatic. This is him in a moment having, being transformed. His perspective of himself is transformed to a right and accurate view of who he is and what he needs. So it's helpful for us to look at this in the light of two things. We're fully in fear zone right now, right? <laughs> but we're also God's creation. We're made in his image and we're made for his love. We're made for relationship with him. We're made to display his glory and to be adored by him. It says in the Bible that he will dance over us with joy. And to view ourselves, and so we can view ourselves in the light of the tragedy that takes place in Genesis 3, where sin enters the world. But the thing about sin is that it's a liar. It started out with a lie and it lives a lie in our life. Sin likes to say, oh, it's not so bad. It's really justifiable, actually. Quite reasonable. Definitely not that bad, right? This is what sin does in our life. And it might seem wrong at first, but after the fact, when we, shame enters the picture, then we're like, oh, well, anybody in my shoes would have done the same thing. It always lies, right? But God is the God of truth. And since we're made in his image and we're made for his love, we can be drawn to this truth and this holiness and move from that place of fear to that place of peace and rest. So when King David, when he committed a horrible sin, when he committed adultery and murder, and then he covered it up, multiple tries to cover it up, cover it up, and he finally got backed into a corner, and he had to, rep to repent and confess. And in that moment, he said, against you only have I sinned. All these people he hurt, but all of those sins in their root were actually against God. I have to ask myself, how often have I chosen to not sin because it might hurt someone I love? Or because there might be a consequence that I'm, I know is coming and I would be uncomfortable with that. But do I choose to not sin because I might hurt God? Because he loves me and adores me and knows me before the foundation of the earth? We can't fix this problem. And so God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to save sinners. The Apostle Paul said, of whom I am the worst, understanding that I am the worst. All through the whole Bible, we get promises. Clear as day promises and glimmers of hope of the coming Savior, both ends of the spectrum. Jesus will save his people his creation, made in his image from that Genesis 3 tragedy of our sins. Being the worst doesn't discount his love for us. It illuminates it. 
He didn't come to chain us, but to liberate us. So Isaiah 6.6, God provides a solution for Isaiah. He is cleansed with coal that touches his lips. You know, he couldn't do anything to save or atone for himself here. He couldn't even put the coal to his own mouth. It all had to be done for him in the response to his repentant and humble cry of his heart. And today, that promised glory is Jesus. You and I receive salvation the same way. His holiness makes makes us fear, and it makes us run, but we have a choice. We can run away from him, or we can run to him. And this is a daily choice as well, isn't it? We choose to run to him because there's relationship there. We can view God like, oh, I could be his friend because of Jesus. We don't understand him perfectly at first, but we could get to know him with the understanding that he made us for his very own. So we need to view God's holiness with humility, but also secure in the fact that we are loved. He has offered us grace, and we can accept accept the grace that he has offered through his sacrificial death on the cross and claim it for our own. Have you ever made a bed with a toddler? This might just be a mom thing, but you know, when you bring in a warm, fluffy pile of sheets and you have a toddler in your house, they are going to run into this pile of sheets and you're going to be putting them up over the bed and you know that it's a messy-haired, grubby, probably peanut butter-faced toddler, tiny, lovable little person, screaming for joy underneath that sheet, right? But all you see is the sheet. God views us with the covering of Jesus' sacrifice for us when we accept his gift. We are messy and grubby and noisy, and probably, if it's me, I have peanut butter on my face, but with all sorts, and we have all sorts of things to sort out and to learn. But he sees a redeemed, no longer red as crimson, but white as snow, it says in chapter 1 of Isaiah, child that he loves. So our next statement to look at is that God's holiness is meant to be the ultimate quest of our lives. Isn't the word quest fun? I love it. It speaks of purpose. If we think of that grubby toddler, we know they're not always going to be a toddler. They're going to grow up and they're going to have their own weird random set of issues and delights that they deal with through their life, right? If you're raising kids, or you did raise kids, or you ever were a kid, you know this is true. We come into the world as our very own person, and that is exactly what it looks like to walk with God, our very own walk. The covering of Jesus' holiness is still there over us, but we've got stuff to work through. But we've moved from fright over God's holiness, to resting in it. And so now we get to pursue his holiness as the ultimate quest of our lives. So in Matthew 6, verse 10, 
Jesus speaks this beautiful prayer, and he says, therefore, you should pray like this, our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your interactions with others through your workday, through traffic, through conflict. Does your marriage or your singleness reflect God's holiness? We get a do-over every day for this. This is not a did thing. This is a does thing. Does your marriage or your singleness, does your interactions, What am I doing from the gratitude of my heart, from a place of transformed child of God to further God's kingdom? In verse 8, the Lord says, who will I send? And Isaiah's in this moment of having just been, his sins just having been atoned for, and he says, here I am, send me. We aren't just saved for heaven for eternity, we're saved for holiness right now. Are you living your life like holiness is a far away, someday, eternity thing? Because you are saved for holiness lived out in your life every day. We are saved for holiness in our relationships, in our community, in our purposeful living, in our response to challenges that come our way. And we're saved for possibility. We're saved for the possibility of not just our eternal life, but the eternal life of people around us and the transformation that God can do through them as well. And we're saved for that final consummated kingdom come, a glimpse of the eternal glorious holiness, glorious holiness as it is in heaven. Holiness is the quest of our lives, and thankfully we aren't alone in this quest. This is a Holy Spirit-powered quest. He guarantees our salvation, and he helps us through this process. As I visualize Isaiah with coal on his lips, I had to ask, how long before he sinned again? And did he feel it, that first sin after his salvation from sin was proclaimed? John 10, 28 says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You know, I can't stop sinning. I lose track of my sins, and if I'm not careful, I could return from that place of rest back to that place of fright. But the more I fall in love with God's holiness and the the more I see and the more I read his word, the more my heart is drawn to his grace and his mercy of his forgiveness. And because I understand his holiness and because I understand that fright that I should feel, right, in the face of that, that gives me the correct view of Jesus' death on the cross and what it frees me from and what it liberates me from. I can rest, fully rest, in the authority of his perfect salvation that he authored to conquer death for me. I have the peace and the confidence in him. I love the idea that Isaiah's atonement in this cold moment was so powerful. He knew he was forgiven for the rest of his life. And that powered his ministry and his life and everything that he did from that moment forward. Does God's salvation do that for you? Does it power your life? Does it power your quest for holiness?
because your heart is full of the salvation that he has given you. The fourth statement that we're going to close with is that everyone longs for a world ruled by a holy God. This is the perfect frame of reference for the reality that we live in today, isn't it? It's an answer to every part of the earthly human experience. Through all people, in all time, and in all ways, it's absolutely universally true. Nobody is like, oh, the world is perfect. Pinnacle perfection right now, right? Nothing could be better. We all dream of perfect justice. The only true justice in the world is biblical justice. We all dream of a land where there's no violence, only peace. We all dream of a world where human trafficking isn't a thing, where addiction isn't a thing, where cancer isn't a thing, aging and sickness and earthquakes and pandemics and disease and tsunamis and hurricanes and fire and flooding, all the things. We all grieve over the fact that somehow people's societal treatment and status can be determined by the color of their skin. It doesn't even make any sense. We grieve weeds and famine and poop and garbage and lost time. The list is very, very long. We all long for peace, for absolute rest, and for security and righteousness. This is the call of God's holiness in our hearts. All of us throughout history and throughout time, we have a cross-shaped hole in our hearts, and the only solution to it is our perfect holy God. Our perfect holy, holy, holy God. It's beyond that, though. We don't just have cross-shaped holes in our hearts. We have love-shaped holes and communion-shaped holes and righteousness-shaped holes. We were designed to live and thrive in a world that was put together and ruled by a perfect creator, a holy and righteous father. Even the most twisted and unholy of human beings have places in their lives where they long for holy and righteous rule. They may deny God, his existence, his authority, his words, his upright law, but they still long for his holiness. Earth will never be the paradise our hearts long for. So that longing that we feel today, it can only be found in his rule in our hearts. Our lives today are meant to be an eternal calling, something that we take with us into eternity. And the people and the stories of God's goodness in our lives, that's what we take with us to heaven. I started talking about God's holiness being unfathomable, and I don't know about you, but what, what I think of overlapping the messy aspects of my life with God's holiness, my brain shorts out a little bit. It sounds uncomfortable and unachievable, doesn't it? But that's actually the key. It's meant to be uncomfortable and hard, but it is achievable. Not because of me, but because of God's holiness. We are called to humility and hope. We are called beyond fear and into rest. We are called to live outside our own self-reliance and the things that we can control, our own solutions, our own wisdom, our own love of our sins into reliance and delight on our holy and perfect God. 
It's meant to make us hungry for him and to fill our hearts up with him. We're not just meant for this world, we're meant for a world beyond this world. So as we keep reading through Isaiah 6, we find out that in his lifetime, Isaiah didn't actually, he wasn't actually successful in the mission that he was called to. It actually says, no one will listen to you and no one will do what you say. Now we know there were probably individuals that did listen to him and those probably kept him going and became his community, right? His wife was also a prophet and we know through the book of Isaiah they worked together very closely. But the point of his book isn't just the people in his time. The point of his book is far beyond his life. You and I are standing in California talking about it today thousands of years later. His book prophesied in the most detailed and beautiful and clear ways the coming of Jesus. It's quoted more than any other book in the New Testament, and it's so clear that today we actually call it the fifth gospel when we talk about it. It was written 700 years before Jesus was born. Isn't that amazing? And over 2,000 years later, we're still reading it and studying it and using it today. So with a typical human perspective, you and I might think that Isaiah went to his grave thinking that he hadn't accomplished what he was called to accomplish. But the last phrase of this chapter says, the holy seed is a stump. Our last house, we had a tree cut down in the backyard, (laughs) and by the next year, It was trying to be a tree again. That stump would not stop growing. In reality, his story was just beginning when he died. Not only his personal eternity in heaven with God, but also his story was continuing here on earth. And his pursuit of God's holiness in his life helps us to pursue God's holiness in our lives today and all believers throughout time since he lived. So, who else can benefit from your pursuit of God's holiness today? We're going to go ahead and seg into remembering Jesus and his death on the cross. And Kim was going to come up and help us through, begin that, I think. I didn't. (laughs) 